From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. To my successor, whoever he or she may be. Number one, stay close to the Americans, stick up for the Ukrainians, stick up for freedom. I helped get this country through an incredibly difficult period over the last couple of years. I made sure that we supported those who needed our help at every step. What I believe is that lowering taxes, opening up opportunities is going to help us deliver the economic growth that Britain needs. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to what's going on in the corridors of power. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Coming up on today's show, doom and gloom abound for the UK economy. We'll hear from the CEBR and our opinion columnist, Marcus Ashworth. And do you ever feel like those in power shouldn't be? We'll be speaking to the political journalist and author Isabel Hardman about that. She's written a book titled Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. But first, Lizzie, we have been having a heated debate about weather forecasts and you don't believe in them. And I want to know why. Heated. Got the pun straight in there. Boom. No, I never look at the weather forecast. I'm northern. So I just feel it in my bones, Stephen. I know exactly when it's going to rain. I I don't need a forecast. I feel like being Irish, we have that Ivan in common as well, except that it's always raining in Ireland. So it's an easy thing to imagine. You don't need to look at a weather forecast to find out. But there has been a lot of talk, of course, about heat waves this summer. We're talking about all about the effects that's having on the economy, energy supplies in Europe being affected by river temperatures in France affecting nuclear power generation the weather forecast becoming something that we're becoming even more concerned about because hot weather now doesn't just mean a nice day out it actually means things getting very uncomfortable and causing huge knock-on effects for things like the environment farming and as we're now hearing power generation as well Uh, so interesting that we should be so concerned about forecasts on a day that we are looking towards of course the UK GDP figures out later this week Indeed while the actual weather has been sizzling the grey clouds are gathering for the UK economy a survey of economists by Bloomberg found that they expect GDP for the second quarter shrank 0.2%. And that would be the UK economy's worst slump since the coronavirus lockdown at the start of 2021. Now, all of this comes after last week's Bank of England's very gloomy forecast for the UK. We've been discussing this with Nina Scarrow, who's CEO of the Centre for Economics and Business Research. She sees the picture a little brighter than Andrew Bailey does. Take a listen. They aren't saying anything that a lot of other commentators aren't saying. What they're saying is that they expect a more prolonged downturn than others are. So we ourselves are expecting a recession. We are how expecting a recession of a couple of quarters of negative growth. Um, I was taken aback that they're expecting a five-quarter recession over the entirety of next year. And what that makes that a little bit worrying, what that sets the Bank of England apart from, from forecasters is they're a participant. So they actually have the power, not just to predict what's going to happen based on, you know, an external set of assumptions, but they're actually going to be contributing to to that growth. So it did seem to me like an acceptance of the fact that this inflation isn't coming down no matter what they do with monetary policy and that we're going to need a recession. How does it compare then to your forecasts? Are you more optimistic about the UK economy? 
were more optimistic than the Bank of England, but by no no means very optimistic. So we are for 2023 expecting growth of around half a percent, which by most measures would not be a very good performance. However, when you see that the Bank of England is expecting a basically performance that four, that's four times worse than that and below zero, I guess compared to that very low level of expectations, we are a little bit more upbeat. I'm interested in the research that you have out about uh, wage rises today, seeing the higher income earners getting much bigger pay rises than those on lower incomes. What sort of detail did you find? So we we looked at um, the the latest pay data and, as, as you say, found that the top earning 1%, uh, quite a lot of that group are city workers, particularly in the finance sector. We're seeing um, wage rises that matched inflation, although given where inflation is, even they are technically seeing sort of stagnant uh, real wage rises. But what is most concerning is the bottom earning 10% are only seeing wage rises of 1%. So their real incomes are are really, really not keeping up with, with inflation. And what's compounding those concerns is that also the inflation rate that is actually being experienced and observed by the lowest earners will be higher than the than the headline rate because a much higher share of their expenditures is on energy, which is one of the categories or in fact the category that's been worst impacted by price rises. And Nina, speaking of pay, CBER estimated that those June transport strikes would have cost the economy £100 million. Do you have a new updated estimate for all the strikes we're now having this summer? And given that the Bank of England sees inflation now peaking not just in double digits, but above 13 percent, does it give the unions more ammunition in their pay negotiations? I can't give you an estimated, uh, an updated figure just because the the details of the strike and there is still a little bit of hope that maybe some of the the ones um, that are planned for the rest of the summer won't be going ahead. But I mean, definitely watch this pace. I suspect we'll be putting new estimates out once things are a little bit closer to to being confirmed. Does it give the unions more bargaining power? It probably does, but it's a very it's a very political beast. The whole whole process. So how much of it is rooted in in fact, and you know how much leverage do they have? Um, their leverage has certainly grown grown with inflation doing what it's doing, and also the fact that there's already been a lot of pushback publicly on the level of disruption that's been caused um, and a lot of, I think, negative attention pointed towards the the government once it emerged. There actually haven't been a lot of direct face-to-face conversations between the ministers and the unions, which I think, you know, a lot of us would have been expecting Mm -hmm. that to happen on a regular basis. So there's been a lot of, I think, a lot of the public opinion has has put pressure on the situation. That was Nina Scarrow, CEO of the Centre for Economics and Business Research, speaking to us a little earlier. Now, let's bring in Bloomberg opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Marcus, the CEBRC says the situation's bad. The Bank of England says it's very bad. Where do you sit in the sliding scale of economic catastrophe? Uh-huh. Um, I think we're about flatlining. I think the government can can help and uh, probably keep it flatlining. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see some form of technical recession at some point. Uh, equally, it's possible we can avoid it. I mean, I just think, you know, going on what the CBR said themselves, uh, Professor Douglas McWilliams there, is saying he thinks the Bank of England's going over the top and he doesn't think that serious economic analysts believe the Bank of England's forecasts anymore. Uh, I'm not sure many of us really did, but certainly on inflation, they've been woeful. Um, as far as what they're trying to do here, I just think it's all pointless because 
they know that this doesn't include anything for fiscal stimulus, which is almost certainly coming, regardless whether it's Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. If it's Liz Truss, it's definitely going to be a fairly big uh, economic stimulus. I'm not saying roar away growth here, but I certainly think the UK will hold up far better than the most of Europe. Is that the point, though, of what Andrew Bailey was trying to get to, is that he was trying to make this statement so that there would be a fire lit under those Tory leadership candidates to make sure they did do the fiscal stimulus? Well, that would be being political, and he's not supposed to be political, is he? Because he's supposed to be independent. So I'm going to say he almost certainly wouldn't do that, wouldn't perish the thought. Uh, It's just so coincidentally that their their models all all spit out nothing but doom, Uh, because maybe they're not looking at the right things, because they don't look out the window and see what's really going on and what's going to happen. Now, partly that's because they can't do it. I'm not trying to blame the Bank of England here on how they present the forecast, but they should have made clearer, I believe, that these forecasts are not going to be correct because they have no waiting at all for fiscal uh, stimulus. It can't do until it becomes uh, policy. You can't blame them for that. But the point is everyone is taking what they're saying and predicting gloom. And that's quite a dangerous thing. I think the Bank of England very much should have weighted this forecast with, look, guys, read through this. It won't be as bad as it looks, almost certainly, if there's fiscal stimulus. I mean, of course, the Bank of England can't take account of unconfirmed fiscal policy in its forecasts. But I wonder, you've been following the BOE for many years. I wonder whether the members of the Monetary Policy Committee actually would have factored in that it's most likely to be a truss premiership and that she's going to do all these tax cuts, in her words, from day one, and that lots of economists are warning they're going to be inflationary. Is that why you reckon we got a 50 basis point hike in August? No, I think they had to anyway because they're so far behind themselves. And that they, they you know this this is very annoying about the Bank of England because you know they were talking only last year about negative interest rates. They they put the entirety of the banking system in the UK prepare for negative interest rates, and now they're trying to say that they they haven't caused inflation and they didn't. You know how could they possibly not see this coming? I mean, they overstimulated it with the monetary policy in conjunction with the government on fiscal policy. Look, they saved us all. We should be very grateful for what the, the authorities together did in 2021 but we're paying the price in 2022 and probably into 23 by the looks of it and maybe longer because they didn't get the take their foot off the accelerator quickly enough and i do think the bank of england holds a lot of responsibility for that in the tory leadership race this weekend's debate has been all about a national insurance cut and you know whether the, the efficacy of tax cuts in fighting inflation is this the most important aspect of this debate are, are the leadership candidates looking in the wrong place no, I think it probably is. I, I, I know it probably is the most important thing because it's so fundamental. And and there's no tax cuts don't have to be inflationary. They really don't. Some of them can be, but equally they can be designed to be not directly inflationary. And the same point in a corporate, the corporate tax cuts, they don't exist. It's it's a question of taking away prospective tax rises. So I think there's a lot of mudslinging going on. I understand a bit. It's all about you know who gets to be prime minister after all. But I think the fundamental point between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak is a very important one. It's the most clear dividing line, and I think we should take very, very close attention to it. But surely the, the most important point is actually to target support at the households who need it most, when we know that this is about the cost of energy and food going up. So why would you be cutting corporation tax when what you need is handouts for the, the people who are going to be hurt hardest? I, I'm going to have to disagree with that. i tell you why. You know, unless you have a strong economy, then... All you're going to do is is hand out for a year or two and then have to, have to keep on handing out because the economy isn't there to support and provide the income required to fund all the spending that is required. So you, you have to manage the economy correctly. And that requires incentivizing it and doing the things which work and, and send an image and project confidence. And that, I think, is where I think 
any form of fiscal tightening um, at this stage with you know heavy inflation and obviously clearly depressing growth uh, and we're the only OECD country in the world to do so is where Rishi Sunak has gone fundamentally wrong and why he will not win. Okay, Marcus Ashworth, I'm sure we'll be hearing plenty more about tax cuts and about the gloomy economic outlook as the Tory leadership debate uh, continues to rattle along. Thank you very much to Bloomberg Opinions, Marcus Ashworth there. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, if you're a keen listener to this show, you will already have heard this fact before, but it's worth mentioning again of the 55 people to hold the office of Prime Minister in the UK, 28 of them went to the University of Oxford. And whether it's Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss who will win the Tory leadership contest, one thing is certain. The next Prime Minister will make that figure 29, with both of them having studied PPE at Oxford. So why do the corridors of power seemingly attract so many with the similar life experience? We're joining joining us now to discuss this is Isabel Hardman, the Spectator's assistant editor and author of, among other books, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. Thanks for joining us, Isabel. I wanted to start by asking, what's wrong with our politicians? <laughs> I mean, it's quite a big question, isn't it? And uh, I think initially it's worth saying that the problems that popularly people imagine are, are quite as widespread um, as, as the real problems. So we tend to see our politicians as being sort of venal, snouts in the trough and all that sort of thing, whereas actually uh, the, the problems that we do have um, are much more pernicious and much subtler. Uh, as you say, um, a lot of politicians uh, tend to be on the same course at the same university, which, while I'm sure people at Oxford is, is very challenging, it teaches you to have a certain worldview, a certain perspective, a certain approach to problem-solving and to policy. And what you don't want in government, but what you get too often, uh, is a group of people with exactly the same approach to things, because you end up with a, a cognitive disconnect where problems um, with the design of a policy, with the uh, implementation of a policy, aren't noticed because everyone thinks the same. Uh, and that uh, goes out throughout Parliament, not just uh, government, but also throughout uh, MPs in the legislature. And is that is that just because of background and where people come from that they're thinking the same way? Or do people adapt the way that they think and act based on the prevailing environment in politics in Westminster? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Westminster bubble is a sort of famous derogatory term that suggests that once you're, you're in it, you, you sort of become like everyone else. And certainly the, you know, the hours and the way in which the, the culture works people do spend a lot of time with one another um, and so obviously become 
um, more sympathetic to um, to certain ways of thinking. But it, it goes back much much earlier than that, much further than that. So um, MPs are drawn from a narrow group in society. Uh, it's people who would initially think that they had some entitlement, some ability to become an MP, uh, which is why, if actually, if you look at schooling, um, an extraordinary number of uh, our prime ministers have come from one school, Eton, um, and we still have a disproportionate um, uh, number of MPs who are privately educated, uh, not just because um, uh, those uh, people who go to those schools will have the sort of social connections um, that will make an MP seem like a normal rather than a completely unimaginable line of work, but also because at those schools they're, they're just more likely to be told that that's something they can consider as a job. Um, and so it's these early subtle little um, little networks, little suggestions that, that start to separate uh, would-be MPs from the rest of society. And, and then you have uh, the selection process to become an MP, which is enormously expensive. So it is, you know, the most expensive and time-consuming job interview uh, in the world. I did research for um, my book that you mentioned, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, that found that uh, in terms of personal cost to candidates, uh, it can cost an average of £11,000 to someone personally to stand for Parliament. And that's even if you know they're standing in a safe seat where it's very easy to win, a marginal seat or a no-hope seat, uh, when you start to look at the marginal seat where it's a real tight battle against another party to win that seat, the, the average costs go up even more. So, you know, £30,000 £30, on average for, for Labour candidates, uh, for winning Tory candidates in the 2015 election, it was it was a six-figure sum, which you know most of us don't mm. have. Um, so that again separates people out, not by ability to be MPs, but by ability to afford to be MPs. Just coming back to the schools point, it's something that I often muse about. I wonder, you know, people, politicians have been criticised for generations for going to Eton, being publicly, uh, going to public schools, going to private schools. Uh, And I wonder, at some stage, is that going to work against them? You know, for parents who are wondering whether to send their kids to private school, will it ever be something that stops you getting into number 10? (laughs) I mean, I think there is a, a... An obsession in politics with backstory and background to the extent that you get politicians who sort of, you know, driven past the council estate once, making it sound like it's their entire life experience to try to sound more interesting than their um, than their equally comfortable peers in politics. And it certainly is the case that by the time you get to uh, by the time you get into parliament and to the top of uh, the tree, and you're you know running for leadership, for instance. Like Liz Trust, you talk a lot about your comprehensive school to separate yourself out from Rishi Sunak, who went to uh, Winchester. So it, it, it is by that point an advantage because within Westminster, it's considered that you've beaten the odds to um, to get in to Westminster. But I'd say that prior to that, it makes it much harder because you're less likely to have the, the social networks, uh, possibly the wherewithal to, to make it that far, which is... You know, it's just not right because that's got nothing mm. to do with whether somebody would be a good legislator or indeed a good minister. But her parents were professors, you know, she's clearly middle class. I'm sure people can see through it. I'm sure some people think it's virtue signalling to just be talking about going to comprehensive school when clearly she's had a wonderful upbringing. Absolutely. You know, within Westminster, people think that's exciting. In the wider world, everyone thinks, why are you banging on about the upbringing that all of us have had far 
you know, what is it, 6%, 7% of the population are privately educated. It, it, in most circles, being privately educated is the, is the standout thing, not uh, going to a comprehensive school, uh, while, as you say, having a very comfortable upbringing in a very middle-class part of Leeds. Well, what, how, I suppose, how do we fix the problem then, right? Like, first of all, what sort of people should we want as our politicians? If we want to have diversity of thought, we want to have those experiences from other places, you know, what should we be looking for in our leaders? Well, the problem is, is that a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of the change would have to come from the political parties. And they don't have a huge amount of incentive to, to change things unless they care about uh, the greater good, their sort of outreach into society. And there has been a little bit more of an effort. So some of the parties have offered limited bursaries for candidates um, to help them with the cost of standing for parliament. So you don't get paid to be a parliamentary candidate. You basically mm. pay yourself. You give up your job. You often you know, move house. You drive all over the place working for free for two years. And so, uh, so the parties have started to sort of acknowledge that that's not really a, a fair way of... Um, of making people work for you, um, but uh, but but it, as, as I say, it goes back much further than that. It's about asking people the question: Would you consider being an MP? Now, that's much more likely to be asked of a child of you know, two lawyers than it is of somebody who has grown up uh, with their parents running a corner shop, for instance. And uh, so, it's it's expanding the networks where it's considered normal to want to go into politics. Um, whether that's through local party membership and, you know, a certain type of person wants to be a member and an active member of a local party. They may not be wholly representative of the population. Um, and uh, thinking about how to reach out into into communities in a way that, uh, that makes party membership attractive as opposed to a sort of uh, pastime for people who can't think of any better hobby. Mm, but David Cameron did do a lot on this, didn't he? I mean, the Tories seem to be well ahead of Labour in terms of diversity at the top. I wonder, is the unpopular reality actually that we just don't pay politicians enough, dare I say it? I mean, it certainly has been the case in years gone by that politicians were, for their level of responsibility, for their skill set, for the, you know, the hours they put in, um, for the different things that they're expected to be uh, doing and decisions they're expected to be making, that they were paid a very uncompetitive uh, rate, but they're now uh, their pay is now around eighty grand a year. That's their basic pay, um, which I think is probably appropriate given that's how much you'd expect to be paid if you were, say, you know, a head teacher or a um, a reasonably uh, high-ranking civil servant. Um, but but the idea that MPs should be paid, you know, a sort of stipend of a few thousand pounds a year uh, would actually make things. Um, you know, it would seem very sackcloth and ashes, but it would just mean that you'd only do it if you were independently wealthy, which would actually take take things back. So uh, I take your point about the Conservatives um, making more effort to um, to change the way they look as a party, uh, albeit coming from, a, I'd say, probably slightly lower base in some uh, aspects uh, than the Labour Party. But they are uh, looking as though they're going to elect their third female leader and prime minister, which um, Labour has <laughs> just not gone anywhere near. Yeah. I, I'm wondering when when you look at the Tory leadership race, are there reasons to be optimistic? Did, you know, it it did start out looking like quite a diverse field, at least on metrics other than wealth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, there are lots of reasons to feel really optimistic, not just about um, uh, the way politics is changing, but the way the Conservative Party is changing. You know, it, it is either going to elect its third female prime minister or its first ethnic minority um, uh, leader, and that's 
you know, that's a big deal. And the fact that we had so many um, leadership contenders who were non-white um, was, again, a you know, something that shouldn't just be dismissed, um, particularly for a party that is often stereotyped as being very uh, traditional, uh, sometimes a little bit prejudiced. I think it's it's a good corrective to that that members that members weren't actually you know taking that view that that, that the many popularly think they do. I mean, what sort of people should we want to be our politicians? I was thinking about the degrees that other top policymakers do, and it's they seem to just drive them towards other parts of the civil service or government. You know, you've got the Cambridge history grad Andrew Bailey at the BOE, but maybe that's just where that degree ends up. There's nothing wrong with those degrees and there's nothing wrong with former special advisors becoming MPs either. It's just that you don't want that to be the only pool from which people are are drawn. We did have in politics the trade union route, for instance, for Labour MPs. And Mm. lots of Labour MPs still come from trade unions, in inverted commas. But if you look at what they were doing for that trade union, they they were now often lawyers um, as opposed to sheet metal workers or miners. Yeah. And so that's really changed it as well. You, what you don't want is such a narrow, homogenous pool uh, that you have MPs who don't understand how a policy is going to impact the general population. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.